Three bad things happen to me and they say like third time's a charm. Three is a magic number. <laughs> The head of Pacific Pharmaceuticals is frustrated with the television shows his company sponsors and wants something to boost his ratings. When he hears about a giant monster on the small Faroe Island, he charts an expedition to capture Kong for publicity and to make him their mascot. Meanwhile, the submarine Seahawk gets caught in an iceberg, which collapses, unleashing Godzilla, who had been trapped within. Godzilla then makes his way towards Japan, leaving a trail of destruction in his wake and setting the stage for an inevitable showdown with the giant Kong to see who will claim the title King of the Monsters. And caught up in all this are humans, trying to save their loved ones in constant peril from the rampaging titans, destroying the cities, and overpowering the military. Grab your super strong wire, magical berries, and lightning rods because it's Wrestlemania and the main event is King Kong vs Godzilla. Wait a second, hold on, that's not the show. Welcome to the kaiju that made us. Well, it's not that show either, but I am Monster Mike Manzi, and joining me tonight is the invisible Dan Cologne from said show, The Monsters That Made Us. Dan, welcome back to Third Time's a Charm. Mike, it's so good to be back. I can't remember, is this the first time I have been on this show as your co-host for The Monsters That Made Us? I think we did the episode of James Bond. Okay. Which might have happened sort of halfway through our first year, and kind of similar vibes with the Godzilla series, you know, 30 plus films. Films, yep. spanning multiple decades, so many iterations of the character. But yeah, Dan Cologne goes from being my horror consultant here to uh, co-host on the much more wildly popular show. <laughs> you know, I, that's why the reason I ask is because I've done this show a bunch. I love coming on to, to talk about horror movies with you. But I couldn't remember being on to talk about monsters since we started our show together. So it's good to be back talking monsters. Yeah, that's true. We we didn't talk monsters on James Bond. You know, some people consider him a monster. But. <laughs> <laughs> We're here tonight to talk about not just Godzilla, but King Kong. You know, uh, arguably two of the biggest heavy hitters outside of the Universal Studios lineup. A stable of classic monsters, yeah. Exactly. Uh, you know, we will not get around to any of this kind of talk for a while over there, so I thought it'd be cool to talk about a little bit of this over here. Thank you also for watching two movies or two cuts and you'll probably put more time into this than we will record it you know you, you've watched longer than it'll take for us to talk about it but I, I thank you about that again well you know for our show I end up watching these movies several times before we actually record so I'm no stranger to putting in the hours awesome I guess let's just get into it a little bit with some history some of our history that is with both of these monsters, you know, unfortunately, I have to be a little abridged. They definitely deserve their own episodes apart, but we have to talk about them both here together tonight. Dan, I guess, you know, since he came first, why don't you tell me a little bit about your history with King Kong? I have always loved King Kong. I cannot remember when I first saw either of these monsters. I'll tell you that right up front. For as long as I can remember, they have both been a part of my life. But I, I, I don't remember when I first encountered King Kong, I, probably when I was a kid at some point. But I have always loved that movie. And as a film student, I grew to love that movie more, you know, with the, uh, the stop motion animation, the special effects. And then Peter Jackson's King Kong came out around the time that I was in high school, I believe. So like, I feel like Kong has just always been with me. I see this question posed a lot on social media, either Facebook, Twitter, wherever. Like, you know, what's the, the one movie that if you could go back in time and see in its original theatrical release, what would it be? My answer is always King Kong. I don't have like one specific reason as to why that is, but there's something about that movie having been released during the Great Depression when people didn't have a lot of money to do things. Movies were something that they could af 
afford to go do. So like King Kong being this thing that unified, you know, the, the general public, I think is really cool. Not to mention the fact that it, it still holds up today in a lot of ways. So for me, as a fan of monsters and classic films, Kong is maybe the number one for me. I'm a, I'm just such a big Godzilla fan. Like I, I have to say, you know, apologies to the king himself, but he is he's definitely like number two for me. But I have to definitely agree with everything you just said about him. I was just thinking about this today, Dan, and it's kind of making me feel super old. But like I come from a time okay, <laughs> where a lot of this media was not accessible, so like I couldn't just like go rent King Kong and Godzilla movies when I was a kid. I had to watch them on TV and stuff, and like Turner Classics and channel 11 and and afternoon sunday movies and things like that and stuff so it was kind of scarce and a rarity and you know i think that made me kind of crave it more and like it more and and want it more i definitely got into king kong much later in life as far as watching the movies a lot and sort of quote-unquote studying them and everything but i'd always been fascinated with stop motion animation as a child and clash of the titans is still one of my favorite movies and so king kong i always gravitated to that kind of effects I always loved that and one of the first blockbuster movies, I guess you would say. But yeah, you know, I, I just love the idea of King Kong and, and everything they've done with it. And, you know, he's still around. This was something that's kind of funny is not only is this the third Godzilla movie, it's the third King Kong movie. There was King Kong, Son of Kong, and then this. So we're kind of killing two birds in one stone. I would have asked you to go the extra mile, but it was just too much if I had said, watch the new Godzilla vs. King Kong. <laughs> because that is also the third new Godzilla American movie in the series. So lots of threes throwing up in the air tonight. I was gonna say, it's almost like we were destined to do this episode. So tell me a little bit about your history with Big G, Godzilla himself. So Godzilla, I have a little more clear of a picture of, of where I started with him. Again, I don't remember like the specific moment when I discovered Godzilla, but I, I have memories of being at my grandparents' house on the weekends. So my grandparents always lived very close by and on the weekends, my sister and I would go stay with them. And I have memories of catching Godzilla movies on TV. Maybe we rented from our local blockbuster. I, I don't re recall that, but I mean, I remember being at my grandparents' house watching Mothra versus Godzilla. That may have been where I started. I'm not sure, but that's the first memory that comes to mind is watching that one. I don't know other specific films that I watched, but yeah, as a kid, I really loved catching Godzilla movies on TV. You know, I, I, I said Kong is like my number one. I think what I meant when I said that is that the film, in terms of like classic monster movies, like that might be my number one, but I have spent much more time with Godzilla over the years. And Godzilla is probably my introduction to Japanese culture. I'm not like a, a Japanese culture super fan the way some people are, but I do really gravitate towards a lot of Japanese media. I think I'm pretty sure Godzilla is, is sort of my, the entryway for me. So I watched a ton of Godzilla movies as a kid. And then as I got to be an adult, you know, I was discovering Godzilla, the new Godzilla movies that were coming out. I've been rediscovering a lot of the old Godzillas with the Criterion set. You know, that came out, I think, two years ago. I picked that up and I've been working my way through that. So, and then I've got the rest on my shelf waiting for me to get to them. So I'm, I'm sort of like in a sort of loose Godzilla project where like I'm working my way through, but I have no schedule. It's just kind of like whenever I can get to the next one, I'll watch the next one. I'm slowly getting there. But uh, yeah, so Godzilla has been a figure in my life almost as long as King Kong. Again, you know, we're lining up pretty close. Um, I, I just remember as a kid, my older brother having that great Godzilla toy that would like shoot his rocket hand and whip out his oh, yeah. like, lizard <laughs> tongue. And, you know, the one that's like $500 on eBay now. Like I remember growing up having that in the house. And, and like I said, they would come on channel 11. But yeah, you know, it's interesting how you sort of framing in context of the films, like King Kong is a straight up adventure movie, right? Like it's Indiana Jones, like rile you up, get you out of your mind because of the Great Depression and like go on this super adventure and everything. Godzilla, the movie is like a whole horror film in the truest sense mm -hmm. of like it's an allegory it's reflecting on the past it's looking towards the future of this culture and this country and it's just like this symbol in general i don't know it kind of has a little more meaning to it than king kong not to like diminish his value either but they sort of have these different contexts that i think are very interesting especially that you can put them both together at some point and that they'll 
match and work. And man, there's so many Godzilla movies. You know, I think there's like 33 live action, maybe like 35 if you count like that they recut the first one, this one, and the 1985 one, and they like added scenes and they like inserted Raymond Burr. So those are like technically different versions. There's like three anime movies on Netflix. There's a cartoon series on Netflix. There were two cartoon series in the past. Like it is just everywhere. And I really dug in deep with Godzilla. Like I'd always really liked him, but I really got into him, I'd say like after college, before podcasting. I think this is what sort of set off my completionist kind of like personal tick. I would sit down and watch every Godzilla movie for like three years. I watched every Godzilla movie every year for like, it was crazy. Wow. Like I just couldn't get enough of it. And then at one year, I remember watching all the other like subsequent films that came out, you know, like the Mysterians right. and Mothra and Varen, the unbelievable, like all the Atragon, like all the other ones in between, War of the Gargantuans. Like I went ape shit at one point. Yeah, I, th- I think I remember that. And, and I think that's how I discovered that there is like a greater universe surrounding Godzilla like everything's connected but like they're not all Godzilla movies there's Rodan and the other the others that you had you had mentioned I had never considered there was like this big universe and that Godzilla was only part of it he's sort of a central hub for a lot of it but uh, yeah there's all these like other movies that are set within that universe with this you know within the timeline I have distinct memories of watching your progression through Godzilla and I think I, I think it rubbed off on me to some degree because I now am very much a completionist with my own collection and uh, yeah it's nuts. That definitely sort of helped train me to do podcasting. I remember when Joey and I started doing Cage Club and he's like you know we're gonna have to watch every single Nick Cage movie. I was like I just watched every Godzilla film. I think I watched every Woody Allen film. I was going through every Kurosawa movie. Like I was on a tear. I was like please give me movies. Right. But yeah I love this whole idea like way before the MCU that Toho had this shared universe pretty much it was even beyond the movies and it was sort of more of just like a spirit and like it became a subgenre. and i think you're familiar with it too but like the tokusatsu big rubber suit yes genre of movies and television series in japan uh at one point you were watching the was it the ultra ultraman and and those series as well like that that is all sort of a part of this like it all kind of culturally comes together uh and yeah godzilla seems to be like the linchpin of it all yeah i am working my way through the ultra series and like didn't occur to me that as a kid i was i was really into that stuff because you know power rangers was an, a ripoff of super sentai yeah for whatever reason i've just always had a thing for the giant rubber suits. So I guess let's get into a little more about this particular movie. Dan, I don't know if you checked out any of the history or behind the scenes of this, but I think you're going to find this quite interesting. No, I, I kind of intentionally avoided a lot of background information, trivia, and all that stuff so that I could learn here. The roles are reversed tonight, my friend. <laughs> Usually you're the uh, the scholar. So this is all off Wikipedia, so there's going to be a lot of tabs being clicked tonight, but this is really cool about the production history of this movie. So I'm just going to read this blurb from Wikipedia. The unusual history of Kong vs. Godzilla began in 1958 with a screenplay treatment written by stop-motion animator Willis O'Brien, featuring King Kong battling a large humanoid monster created by Dr. Frankenstein's grandson in San Francisco. Originally titled King Kong vs. Frankenstein, it would have been a direct sequel to the original King Kong, O'Brien's masterpiece. He showed his screenplay treatment and concept art to RKO Pictures, who in turn introduced O'Brien to producer John Beck. After a handshake deal with O'Brien, Beck commissioned screenwriter George Yates to flesh out the screenplay treatment into a full script that could be shown to investors. Yates changed the title to King Kong vs. Prometheus after the full title of Mary Shelley's original novel, Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. Unable to find an interested studio in the United States, Beck went to Toho with the script. Toho purchased the rights to use King Kong from RKO and produced Kong vs. Godzilla, which Beck retained the distribution rights for in the United States, Canada, UK, and Israel. Uh, Initial thoughts about this starting out as a Frankenstein movie. You know, the idea of a King Kong 
meets Frankenstein is is wild to me because of like were they just gonna make Frankenstein a giant kaiju sized creature? I mean, I know that has been done, right? Isn't there a Japanese film about like a giant Frankenstein monster? So I guess that's what it would have been. Frankenstein versus Baragon. Yeah, so that is the movie that was spun out of the idea of Godzilla versus Frankenstein. Frankenstein ended up fighting a giant lizard, just not Godzilla. Okay, but like, I have to wonder how they thought they could use the Frankenstein monster knowing that the character was owned by Universal. I guess the idea was they were using Dr. Frankenstein and he was going to create a new monster that would be the size of Godzilla, possibly? Maybe. I mean, I mean that, that, that sort of takes the whole Frankenstein idea and spins it on that technicality. Like, well, actually, Frankenstein's the doctor, not the monster. But like, if you make your if you make a movie called King Kong meets Frankenstein, people have expectations and it's not King Kong versus a scientist. So it, I'm really curious to know how they thought this could work. Had they made it, I absolutely would have wanted to see that. That other giant Frankenstein movie is not bad. It, it almost feels like War of the Gargantuans as well. Like those also feel like giant Frankenstein monsters. I guess there was just this idea that like, you know, American monster stuff is popular and very influential. And, you know, Japan, now we have our own monster. Like maybe, you know, this whole idea of it's like Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, right? Sure. It's like already kind of ingrained within monster society. These guys meet up sometimes and have a cup of coffee. By this point, having having uh, iconic monsters meet would not have been brand new. I mean, Frankenstein met the Wolfman in 1943. So there would have been a good, you know, 20 years or almost 20 years leading up to this moment. But like, I have to wonder, you know, like, were these characters as big in the early 60s as they are today? Like when when Kong and Godzilla fight now, like they've got decades upon decades of history. But here it's it's 20 years and it's the third movie for both of them. I, I have to wonder how the public would have reacted to that. Yeah, and Kong has sort of been out of the public eye for a while, and this will sort of bring him back in. There will be another solo Japanese Toho film, King Kong Escapes, which he fights a Robo-Kong, sort of like Mecha-Kong. It's not bad. I guess like a decade or so later, we get the Dino De Laurentiis movie, which has kind of a similar Kong plot with its elements of making Kong a spokesperson for like a company and everything. This kind of brings Kong back in, I feel, whereas like Godzilla was just kind of getting started. I think American audiences were just eating this shit up for the last decade with the atomic age exploding all over the drive-ins and, you know, the matinees and all that kind of thing. But yeah, it's it's a very interesting thing to think about, like, rights and things like that. Like, RKO obviously had the Kong license, but like, what were they doing with Frankenstein? It's like, well, it's in the public domain. Hammer was making Frankenstein movies around this time, weren't they? Yes, they were, actually. I've been thinking about it, and it's possible that I read somewhere Universal didn't have exclusive rights to the Frankenstein name, and it was just Jack Pierce's makeup. And if that's the case, then I can I can understand how they got away with it. Especially because you're right, I completely forgot Hammer uh, had started making Frankenstein movies in the late 50s. So, yeah, maybe there wasn't a rights issue. Yeah, and it's a bit of a different thing because... King Kong, it seems like those rights were locked up. It seems like Godzilla, you know, Toho still has those rights, like, solid as can be. So this feels more kind of like, oh, we worked a lot of this out with lawyers. (laughs) I mean, I feel like they also both need each other at this point, at least for America. I think Godzilla was doing fine climbing the ladder in Japan. He's doing just fine. But I think for American audiences, it needed a bit of a boost and a kick in the pants. And like you said, needed to know that there was somewhat of like a like a shared universe sort of aspect to this kind of thing. And seeing this like wrestling match, for lack of a better word, like this main event, I think was just the kind of thing like the drive-in would like start eating up or like American audiences would get like, I don't know, a little more aware of Godzilla and then their fondness of King Kong all wrapped into one yeah yeah i mean that makes sense when you frame it like that i can definitely see it i'm still just thinking about king kong versus frankenstein Uh (laughs) all right so let's get into a little bit of the movie here i will briefly sort of describe the plot and then we'll get into the major differences some of our favorite moments all of that good stuff 
So the basic plot for both the American cut and the original Japanese version are pretty much the same. There's like this disturbance in the sea where all of these icebergs are starting to melt and it turns out that Godzilla is in one of these icebergs and the fusion from his energy is causing them all to melt. So a submarine is sent to investigate. At the same time, a pharmaceutical company is looking for a new ad campaign so that they could get better ratings for their TV show, which is showing this exploration of the icebergs with the submarine investigation and it's sort of like a uh, dateline kind of situation okay so the actual show is called the wonderful world tv show presented by pacific pharmaceutical companies this television show is looking for sponsors so a guy comes to him with these berries and says you know your pharmaceutical company these have very good effects for people like they're healing they're non-addictive they come from this very mysterious island and so they send this expedition to the island and it turns out that it is guarded by king kong when the ad executive's boss find this out he wants them to capture kong and bring him back to japan and use him in their ad campaign and that'll give him big big ratings i feel like this whole narrative could be used today just because i hadn't seen this version before i'm i'm only familiar with the u.s version prior to this the criterion set only includes the u.s version for some reason so i finally got to watch the japanese cut and and the whole story about this this pharmaceutical company trying to bring over a giant-sized monster for advertising and, and boost in ratings and all of that like I, I was like this could have been made 10 years ago and it would have felt relevant you know like it still feels relevant it's wild to me yeah so the 1976 king kong i believe the dino de Laurentiis production starring the dude and charles groden right. <laughs> so charles groden works for this oil company and they go to skull island because they think there's a large deposit of petroleum there but they find kong and he's like screw the oil let's bring kong back and they dress him up in the finale as like you know those giant inflatable gorillas you see at car shows oh, yeah. or like car lot like he looks like that like it is insane so you're right they could definitely have used this, you know, if they weren't going with the whole hollow earth in the new stuff. That's only half the story. Also, what's also going on is, you know, the submarine is investigating these icebergs that are melting in the sea, and it turns out that one of them has Godzilla in it. He attacks the submarine. He makes landfall. He gets attacked by the army. He defeats them. The guys at the pharmaceutical company end up having King Kong put him to sleep on the island. They put him on a raft, but he escapes. He runs into Godzilla. It's round one. They fight. Godzilla burns King Kong. He runs away. The military starts setting all these traps for Godzilla. They want a, a giant ditch with poisonous gas, all these electric lines to try and shock him. I think it's called like Operation 1 Million Volts. Some very cool things going on, but nothing can stop Godzilla and King Kong. Godzilla crossed the countryside. King Kong is storming through the cities. Eventually, they meet up and they have the final showdown on the side of Mount Fuji. And it is just like an all-out rumble. You know, it's just a full-on wrestling match. They just go all out with each other. And at the end, they tumble into the sea together. But King Kong is seen swimming away at the end with Godzilla out of sight. However, you do hear a roar at the very end, possibly indicating that he is still alive somewhere. There's so much more going on in this movie with the humans that I haven't mentioned. We'll dab into that a little bit as we get going. Dan, was that intelligible? Did I get that outright? Like, you know, that's that's mostly the Japanese version. The American version is unintelligible. We'll talk about that in a minute. But like, I, I got that pretty close, right? Yeah, that's definitely broad strokes what's happening. The human storylines I find to be way less interesting. So, I mean, we can definitely touch on those. But yeah, as far as the two, our, our two main attractions here, I think that you've definitely uh, distilled it down to just its, its major plot points. Okay. Now, the American version is insane. Yeah, you know, I, I thought that their structure was clever but then i watched the japanese version and i realized what they were doing and it seems like it sort of ruined the whole effect for me if you're gonna watch them i'd say watch the american version first and, the, and then the japanese if you can find it dan and i we had to watch it on youtube there's a great copy up there for now as of this recording it's still up there i actually have a dvd version that i got like years ago off the internet that's a really nice copy but nevertheless like it's harder to to find. I don't know why it's not on the Criterion collection. Like, that was a real bummer. 
But again, this is this is sort of par for the course when Godzilla comes to America is they will there's a lot of stuff that doesn't necessarily translate perhaps like they will sort of like culturally appropriate a lot of things in a way like they will make it from the American perspective so that it's easier for American audiences to understand what's happening culturally in a different country. And with the original Godzilla, they reshot scenes with an actor called Raymond Burr, and he basically played a reporter uh, in Japan at the time of the attack reporting on what is happening from the American side. And that's called Godzilla King of the Monsters. And if you watch that with the original Godzilla, you kind of get this weird, larger points of view and perspective of what Godzilla means at the time to both countries like it's very strange and very interesting at the same time and they basically did the same thing in 1985 they took Godzilla Returns they shot new scenes with Raymond Burr you know basically did the same thing to much less effect like I remember as a little kid our family like being like that was horrible and I didn't know I love Godzilla you know I didn't know the difference but we saw that in theaters and my parents were pissed (laughs) (laughs) Raymond Burr is missing from this but they did the same thing they did what they do is that they shot new footage now they wouldn't do this for every movie but what they would do is distributors would get a hold of i don't even think they'd get the negative they would just get a copy of of the movie they would cut it up for time for screening because a lot of these debuted on television and the others debuted as double bills at drive-ins and stuff and then of course what became sort of its defining characteristic in this country ended up as sort somewhat of a joke is the treacherous overdub in most of this stuff it became a huge thing in America like that whole oh the Japanese overdub and Shaw Brother film overdubs and things like that a lot of people were very turned off by these films due to that thing so when you get them in their original form in the original language with the nice subtitles they're way different and way better and they're so much more enjoyable so I can only say if you're out there like I hope you could also watch the Japanese version someday I didn't really dislike the U.S. version of this. It's all I had, and I hadn't seen the Japanese version. I was like, this one's okay. I had, like, other issues with it, but I wasn't supremely disappointed by it. I think this one's a lot of fun. But, like, once I saw the Japanese version, it made everything clear to me as to what was being done to the film with the U.S. version. And, like I said, it kind of turned me off in a lot of ways. Now, what they do is they take the movie as it exists, right? Like, the Japanese version is cut, that's the finished movie. But then they'll take it, and then they'll they'll create American characters and edit them in. I do kind of think that the way they do it here is somewhat clever, but I don't love how it affects the overall story because I do love how much of the Japanese version is about that pharmaceutical company chasing ratings. And almost all of that is uh, excised from the US version. So the motivation on the part of the pharmaceutical company doesn't make as much sense. But it did feel modern in a way like watching an American like news anchor reporting on what's happening in the world and then cutting to his counterpart across the Pacific Ocean in Japan using satellites. If I was like, oh, I guess satellite communication must be new or new-ish at the time. And so they're like, they really want to make this part of the story. So, okay, I get it. They're going to bounce from, from the United States to Japan. We're going to be reporting on what's going on. But what it does is, is it breaks up the movie in a way that it sort of bogs down the narrative, right? Like it slows everything down. And it's already shorter than the Japanese version. They cut out a lot of material to make room for this, but it's not as effective as it could be yeah basically the way they frame it is when the movie starts we're greeted not with like the wonderful world tv show from pacific pharmaceutical but we're getting like the united nation news network and they're talking about the disturbance in the ocean with the icebergs and everything and they're bouncing their satellite like you say to their affiliates around the globe and they're just showing off like the setup is we have access to news around the world and then we sort of go into you know more of the day-to-day life of the characters and And the movie kind of starts and gets going properly and we get like the original footage. The thing that really bothered me after watching the original cut is how like the movie will get going and then it'll just abruptly stop and cut back to these guys that like all the, you know clearly all this footage was shot in a day like that's what bothers me yeah. too is the production values like they just didn't give a fuck they shot all this shit in a day and they just spliced it into the movie and it's like okay but like it looks like that show a little more effort a little more respect but then you get back into the movie and then it, it and then it like cuts short again and you know what I love about the Japanese cut is the flow yes. 
it flows beautifully. And as you mentioned, it's directed by the original Godzilla director, Ishiro Honda, who directed, I think, still the most. He directed eight Godzilla movies, all from the uh, the Showa era of Godzilla films. So we got the original guy here, and that's what ultimately, for me, really bothered me the most. It wasn't that they were, quote-unquote, Americanizing this stuff. It was the way they were doing it. It was so disruptive and just kept taking me out of it. And I was watching the Japanese one. I was like, I can't believe how immersed I am in this. Yeah, it takes all of the emotional momentum that could be getting us through this story is is completely derailed by these cut-ins. I don't think that conceptually it's a bad idea. I think if they had leaned on it less at the beginning, right? That first sort of segment, which is like kind of a big information dump that you need to jump into this story. So like, I, I think that's what I like about it is that it sort of drops you into the middle of a story in progress. But like, they just keep going back to that well. And, and like, I don't end up caring about the human characters like that, that are actually involved in this story as much because every time I start to care about what they're doing, we cut back to these guys in the studio who we don't really know. They're just guys there clearly just to give us information. And then they throw us back to the story and you have to reacclimate yourself, right? Okay, where did we leave up? Oh, okay, right here. Okay, here we are. And that's really not an ideal way to, to watch this movie, that's for sure. It's crazy because we have one character, you know, the Fumiko, and she runs into Godzilla and King Kong. And in the American cut, I kind of can't track that it's the same girl. So I don't really care as much but then in the japanese kind of like oh man this poor woman is just like monster bait like what is going <laughs> on you know there's just more there's just more there with all that storyline too and what also kind of bugged me is when they cut back to this new footage they're kind of reshooting stuff that they're explaining in the japanese cut for the most part They'll kind of truncate certain scenes and then give the information they're trying to get across to the new American version actors. And they'll like, you know, bring out a book of dinosaurs and be like, this is what a Godzilla is and this is what a Kong might be. Whereas like in the Japanese cut, they're just talking about it because they know Godzilla because they're Japanese and they've dealt with him before. So it's just it's in their history. They don't need to really go deep into any of this stuff. It's only for the newer uh, American audiences that have to be sort of uh, indoctrinated into like, you know, all of this madness that's been happening. Oh, yeah. That was one of the things that I loved most about the, the Japanese version is that like Godzilla is already kind of a, a, a staple of Japanese culture. Like they're talking about how like he's all over magazines, you know, there's a Godzilla movie, you know, like like and kids fucking love him. Yeah. So I, I love how it's it's kind of meta and the, and the U.S. version just doesn't have that same kind of fun, you know, like it's it's played much more straight. It's, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of stiff because of it. For the most part, what they're doing doing is like okay so like in the japanese version there's this very great tension built up where they'll be cutting back and forth to the submarine stuff and the other human stuff about getting ready for the expedition and it's like this build up for godzilla to break free from his iceberg but they kind of combine all of those moments into one sequence for the american version and that's like that's sort of the stuff that's going on right. here and they're, and they're sort of rejiggering and moving scenes around a little bit just to make their narrative work a bit better but they'll do stuff like the scientist character who created that super string fujita in the american version he's his airplane crashes but in the japanese version his boat sinks like why what is you know it's like things like that that boggle my mind <laughs> Yeah, I, I I wish I could explain that away, but there's really no good explanation for it. Like some of the, yeah, you're right. Some of these changes seem to be arbitrary and I don't really understand why. I get why some things would be changed in order to make them more um, accessible to an American audience. That makes sense to me. But yeah, changing an airplane crash to a boat sinking makes absolutely no sense. I remember watching the Japanese cut last night and then that whole conversation about the boat sinking. I was like, is this new? And I couldn't remember if I had seen that in the in the US version. It didn't ring a bell, but I also couldn't remember what it was in the US version if it wasn't a boat sinking. So thank you for reminding me. But yeah, it's just I don't I don't understand why so many arbitrary changes would be made. It's it's baffling. And they cut weird stuff like character introductions and developments and things. I was wondering who are these guys working for this pharmaceutical co? Like, what is going on? Who are these guys? Why are they sent away? But you learn in the Japanese cut that, like, one's actually a cameraman. Right. 
you know, and one is a producer. And so like Sakurai uh, main character basically is a completely different person in both movies. I kind of hate his guts in the American version. Like he's kind of like a pushy prick or something. But like in the Japanese cut, I don't know. It's just like so much more character driven. And it's just wild to me that they would eliminate all of that stuff. Like there's a lot of great talk at the office in the Japanese cut at the pharmaceutical Mm -hmm. place where they're like, King Kong and Godzilla, like imagine if they fought. And then that's when the guy gets, he's like, imagine if they did fight. I feel like all of that is lost because we're constantly cutting back to United Nations News Network going, so professor, what if King Kong and Godzilla actually fought each other, right? It's like, you're just, you're just kind of stealing that thunder. Yeah, it's more fun when you realize that the, um, I, I cannot remember his name, but the, you know, sort of the, the guy in charge at the pharmaceutical company, right? He's actively like sort of at one point pursuing like a fight between the two, right? I think like Kong is ours. And if we can show the world that he can defeat Godzilla, you know, like, like our ratings will go through the roof. So the idea that he would try to orchestrate that to happen as opposed to the US version where they just sort of by chance meet each other multiple times, you know, like it doesn't make any sense that that would happen. I love this idea that that human beings would kind of force this to happen or or see to it that it would happen uh, in order for ratings. That to me is is a lot more fun. And they they do treat it like a fight. Like it's almost like, oh, round one. I think one of them at one point refers to it. Round one, round two or something like that. And then like the idea that, you know, they're going to have to destroy each other. They're both going to have the same fate. And then watching his face fall when he realizes that he's going to lose the the monster that he just set out to bring back for his own business. There's so much cool stuff like that. Like I love when they're bringing Kong back on the boat and he's on the raft and then like the Navy shows up and they're like, hold on, you're not bringing that to Japan. They're like, what are you talking about? It's my mom. It's my King Kong. And they're like, no, 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 no. We got fucking Godzilla. We don't need this, this shit too. like stay put. And, And that's when like, Kong actually wakes up and breaks free and he and he makes his way to Japan on his own and stuff and so it like that's so great. Was that scene in the US version? Because I don't recall that conversation where the Navy tells him like any damage sustained by Japan by the hands of King Kong, you know, you're gonna be responsible for that. I don't remember that conversation at all. No, so there's a couple moments like that that are not in the American. That's not in the American version. The the, the Navy vessel just kind of shows up and, and it has a warning, but they don't go like they don't board their ship. They don't have that. And then they sort of have that same similar sort of scene twice again later when the pharmaceutical guys are chasing the action. I don't know how else to explain it, but like they're chasing Kong and to get past barricades and stuff. They're like, I'm his sponsor. I'm his sponsor. <laughs> Yeah, and I love how in this movie the the, the military uh, listens to scientists and these advertising executives way more than they would in real life. I'm like, if this were real life, the military would not allow them through that barricade. They would not listen to them, and they would just focus on destroying these two things as quickly as possible. But I love how much respect is shown to at least the scientists here. Yeah, I mean, because the same is with Fujita. He's doing like a full on Bruce Wayne, like he's yes. heading towards the destruction, trying to find his girl, his fiance in the Japanese cut, his girlfriend in the American cuts. It's weird little things like that that bother him, <laughs> uh, like senseless stuff. There's just such great development, like the military feels like its own character. All of the humans have enough traits that they feel like characters, so much so that I feel like the American version, there's no like consistency or something like that. Yeah, it does get difficult to kind of identify who is who over the course of the U.S. version. I had a much better time, much easier time kind of keeping track of everybody. And I think that just comes down to not breaking up the movie the way the U.S. version does. Uh, we get to stick with these characters and we, we learn, you know, who they are in relation to other characters around them. We just don't get the same opportunity with the U.S. version, which is unfortunate. There must have been some thinking on the U.S. side like, well, it doesn't matter who these characters are. People just want to watch these monsters fight. And so I feel like that's why a lot of that character development was left on the cutting room floor. I remember sitting watching the Japanese cut going like, holy crap, like the last 40 minutes of this is nonstop wild craziness, you know? Like as soon as Kong and Godzilla first meet, like everything from there on is like action, like building the traps, like they're getting caught in the traps, they're trampling cities, they each destroy a train. Yeah, and I I think in the US versions, we don't even really get to see the inside of those trains, right? We just assume they're full of people. But in the Japanese version, I was like, wow, like they're, they're spending a lot of time 
on the people inside the train. And I, and then the evacuation at one point, that, that whole evacuation sequence, I was like, this is great. We're watching the chaos that ensues when like, oh, Godzilla's coming. Everyone gets the fuck out of that train and then they're cramming into the buses. Like I was on the edge of my seat watching that. They, they leave the women and children behind. Yeah. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> one thing that maybe they saw that in the American version was like, we can't leave all this to one long stretch, right? I think the American version took a lot of stuff and, and moved it up and moved things around to space out stuff for more of like a pacing that American audiences might be more comfortable with. Because American movies are like only made in America, right? Like, I don't know how else to really say it, but like foreign movies don't always follow the same structure and the same pacing and all that. And they're not concerned with that as much. And very much like how James Bond is sort of those movies, for the most part, when you get into it, they're kind of split in half. Um, You sort of have like the first part of the mission and then like he's in the shit for the second half of the movie and it's like the rest of the mission and everything. Primarily, from what I understand, Godzilla movies are a lot of the same. Like the first half is all the setup and the second half is all the action and all the fighting and stuff. And I kind of prefer that, but I don't blame the editors for doing that per se. It just ruins the flow because you just see all of this. It's just like, it's like 40 minutes of it, you know? It's like a short film of just destruction and all the great monster movie Godzilla stuff you would expect. Very much feels like the the U.S. cut it was, was dumbed down to a degree in order to make it more um, what American audiences were used to at the time. Fortunately, the Hollywood system was uh, on its way to collapsing and, and audiences would show in like another 10 years that they could handle different types of uh, story structure and um, and whatnot. So definitely feels like I'm being condescended to when I have this American news anchor and, you know, explaining the story to me as, it, as I go. Yeah, when that guy busted out like a children's book on dinosaurs, <laughs> I was like, you got to be kidding me, guy. Would you run to the library on your way or did you just grab it off your kid's desk? Like what? Yeah, so I wish I knew the answer to this. Maybe you do. Like at this time in 63, would Godzilla have been seen as adult entertainment or as kids entertainment? Because that's a big deal. And in America, I could see Godzilla being for kids because by the late 50s, Universal Monsters had become kids movies. So so maybe in, in the U.S., anything with a monster in it, like a giant monster, anything that even remotely felt like a horror movie or science fiction would automatically be lumped into a kid's category. If that's the case, then I could understand why we have scenes like an American opening up a a dinosaur book to explain what's happening. Yeah, you have like someone's dad explaining the movie to you as you're watching it. So that's something I hadn't considered, is that in Japan that this movie might have been a movie for adults, and in America this might have been a movie for kids. That would make sense to me. That's a very interesting point there, or something to explore, because for sure the original Godzilla is not a children's film. Okay, right. like that that was put out for adults to be like, yes, this, this, these are the horrors that, that we are dealing with. Um, Godzilla Raids Again, a little lighter, but still the same kind of vibe, like still serious monster movie. Before we get to King Kong vs. Godzilla, we have Rodan, Varen the Unbelievable, and Mothra. And I think by the time they got to Mothra, they were like, you know what? We need something a little lighter. Everything is destruction. Everything's a giant lizard thing or something. You know, everything is killing stuff. Mothra will be the nice monster, the protector. Mm right? She's the queen of the monsters. And there started to be this shift in the Showa era where Godzilla would be way more kid-friendly as it went along. So by the time he's fighting King Ghidorah, he's the hero. During Destroy All Monsters and the, you know, fighting Hidora, Gigan, like, they are essentially, you know, for the most part now children's films. But then at the end, they try and turn it back a little more. Those Mecha Godzilla movies that, those two that end the Showa era are, are very dark and serious. So there's definitely a vibe here where it's like you know we're cutting back to my uncle trying to just like ruin the movie <laughs> I mean, like now in case you haven't been paying attention because you're a little kid and you're probably coloring in a coloring book at the same time as watching this movie here's what's happening as an adult that's very frustrating I know I have one or two moments I'd like to mention that just really stuck out to me but uh, are there any big scenes or sequences that you especially liked or didn't like or would like to mention before we get out of here well we spent a lot 
of time talking about you know the plot structure and the, and the human characters, but uh, like I, I kind of want to talk real quick about the depiction of these characters within this movie. I think Godzilla is great here. He is kind of like it's this is kind of an all killer no filler Godzilla. When he shows up, he means business. It's basically whenever they need something destroyed, and if Kong has already been seen, they're gonna go to Godzilla and he's gonna destroy you know a military base or a train or a building or whatever. And so he's just like firing at all cylinders. He's got his atomic breath going, his tail whip. It's like a Godzilla's greatest hits throughout a lot of these fights. So Godzilla looks great here. Real quick on the Godzilla stuff though, but because Kong is an issue. Yep. <laughs> but. <laughs> so I think this, this for a long time, and maybe now this is my favorite Godzilla suit from the Showa era. And this is the only time it was officially used in a movie. Oh, no way. It was only used once again in an unfinished, partially sanctioned fan film by one of the longtime producers of Godzilla. And it was in a film, unfinished film called Godzilla versus the Legendary Wolfman. <laughs> and you could see all that footage on YouTube. It's pretty spectacular. And this is the suit that is used in that footage. And that is the only other time you see it, which is too bad because I think the silhouette is, is incredible. It's got this angular sleekness to it. We'll never see again with like how slick he kind of feels and yep. looks very wet yep. yeah and i love i just i loved it too yeah you're right man he is on the warpath yep what i thought was funny is that i think it was the u.s version specifically where it's one of those segments where they're kind of like the scientists are talking about godzilla and kong and they hold up the gorilla skull and they're talking about the size of godzilla's brain versus the size of kong's brain and I think the Japanese version does make some reference to the fact that Godzilla is just this like blunt instrument kind of force of nature and Kong is like a thinking monster. But where is that in this movie? This whole movie, I, I feel like Godzilla is the smarter of the two in every fight scene they have. And Kong's move is to just like throw boulders. Yes, that's his special move. Like Godzilla's got atomic breath. King Kong throws rocks. But Godzilla seems much smarter here just in terms of how he employs his different tactics you know he's not just doing the same thing over and over he's switching it up he does a drop kick here yeah he's got the high ground in their first fight that's how he wins it right, right? like he's smart enough like i agree and like Kong's smartest moment in this entire movie is when he like pretends to be knocked out for a second and then like surprises godzilla right so anyway Kong he's a giant monkey Right, he's a giant ape, and he looks absolutely nothing like RKO's Kong, which I, I would love to know why they didn't try to create a suit that resembled the original Kong. Maybe it didn't matter to them, to Japanese audiences, if it looked like the original Kong. But this suit, I have some issues with it, man. Yeah, it's got problems. I mean, first I'll just say, I think they tried to make it as close as they could with the technology they had, you know, and, and the time. You got to understand they were working on, you know, they knew how to make Godzilla suits. They were True. making other monsters and stuff. I think before we get too deep into it, the way it feels to me is that um, they kind of just dropped the ball. Like, they, they, you know, whatever, when you see that show on Sci-Fi Channel of everybody doing those makeup contests, yes. face-off, yep. it feels like they ran out of time, they ran out of, like, materials, and they just did the best they could. But it is... It's unfortunate. Well, it's also, it's possible, I think, that if this were in black and white, it might look a little better. You know, like I think about how Martin Landau as Bela Lugosi and Ed Wood didn't look like Bela Lugosi in color, but when they shot him in black and white, he looked like Bela Lugosi. I think that's a great point because the Japanese cut is a bit darker and it does hide a lot of it, especially when he's first shown on the island. Like he actually doesn't look that bad. It's, it's not until like, the daytime where the seams are showing i don't know that he would ever really re truly resemble the original kong but i think black and white might help because uh, you know the original kong was in black and white but like this suit kind of gives me nightmares a little bit although i do kind of love the utility of the arms and the, the changing arm lengths whenever they need kong to, to throw something it's he's got short human arms and then otherwise he's got these big long ass arms i don't know it's i mean it's not great but i kind of love the inconsistency with his arm lengths here 
I wouldn't say I ever fully like it, but like a part of me ends up just accepting it because it's not that I like it, but I, there's something so... Yeah, okay, so when they're airlifting him to Mount Fuji with the giant balloons, like you just can't help but laugh. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Because it's clearly like an action figure tied to a model and a prop and all that kind of thing. And, and there's just something sort of like the spirit of it takes over for me. Every time I watch a Godzilla movie, I, I get like that moment where it's like, I just don't give a shit about the effects anymore. <laughs> uh-huh. And especially like I think with this one, they did, they did a very admirable job of trying to have a both fun and dramatic story with all the peril and the comedy that comes along with the Japanese cut that I end up being like whatever when it comes to the King Kong effect you know I wish it was better but I'm sort of whatever yeah it's just I think it's mostly the suit that I don't love straight up it's a bad suit but I think it's just I wish Kong was smarter too I think that he's he's kind of stupid in a lot of these movies or a lot of these scenes and in that first encounter when he realizes he's not able to defeat Godzilla instead like he doesn't run away he sort of sulks away and I'm thinking how do you end a a fight scene like that he just kind of trudges off I don't know I just don't see Kong doing that but oh I almost forgot this Kong gets his power from electricity whose idea was that yeah I love it they had to make Kong kind of sci-fi like kind of a supernatural character somehow and and give him this magical like electricity strength I guess because just otherwise he wouldn't be able to defeat a nuclear monster well yeah you know Godzilla has the atomic breath and he has lightning hands now and I gotta tell you I wish to God that like this was in the new stuff i wish that they had somehow you know not the peter jackson stuff but like the new stuff you know the the 2020 stuff king kong is picking up stuff and making an axe and he's making this and he's making tools and stuff like no have him get struck by lightning and now he like glows blue and he looks like raiden from mortal kombat (laughs) like that's what i need I mean, the new Godzilla versus Kong kind of does that with his big axe he builds. But like, just take the axe and like put it inside of him. Right, right. Like, I see make him the axe. <laughs> like when he sits on that throne under the under the earth, like have something happen where he gets like charged up <laughs> with powers and things. That would be cool. Quickly, did you you saw that one? What do you, do you have any anything to say about that? Quickly, especially after seeing this one and and sort of the uh, like homage moments that they sort of lifted to put in that movie yeah well i mean both movies are kong movies right i mean i very much felt kong was the star of this original kong and godzilla movie the new one very much a kong movie i mean i i guess the idea behind making kong the main character is that he is more capable of emotion i think that the new kong is definitely smarter and so that whole angle works much better uh do i like the sort of hollow earth stuff they did not particularly but i think that the um i mean there's just no no getting around it i think that fight scenes are head and shoulders above this 1963 movie but i mean this is this is two guys in suits today and we get you know, giant CGI monsters. So of course they can do much more stuff with it. But yeah, I mean, like I, I, I like the new one quite a bit. I didn't really care for Mechagodzilla as much as I thought I would, but I kind of love what they did kind of drawing from this for this new one in what little ways they did. So, you know, I thought it was a nice callback. Yeah, me too. And and actually watching these for this show has sort of uh, lit a fire under me again. It makes me want to go back and now I want to restart this whole series again and <laughs> take it from the top or, or something like I just want or go back and watch my favorite ones. Like I have favorite ones for sure out there and stuff. So, yeah, I, I really like the new one, too. And I liked how they used moments from this the best that they could for that. Like there's all the boat sequence, but they involved Godzilla with it. I thought that yes. was really cool. So as far as this particular movie um there's only i think one or two moments that we haven't talked about that i'd like to real quick now you know you had messaged me while we were in the middle of watching these and stuff that um you know as per every depiction of kong island you know the natives it's never great you know so we we don't really have to dig deep into that per se or anything but there is a moment on the island that i want to talk about where uh one of the guys gets like I don't know how he, he's, he's got like a fever. So they're going to get this berry juice to make him feel better. And one of the island children goes into the hut and a giant octopus attacks. 
so the giant octopus attack's amazing. I couldn't believe that this wasn't the giant evil god they were referring to. Seeing as how Kong comes to sort of save the day, you didn't, you wouldn't assume he would be the evil god. But I mean, it was amazing just to see like, yeah, we just have this octopus. Like, let's throw it on the set and watch him destroy our model kit. Like, I thought that was really, really fun. I mean, they're not the most sophisticated, but I do love how they were employing a lot of effect shots here because they had a, they had a, a real octopus. Uh, I mean, a couple, I think a couple of the shots, it's a it's a fake octopus, like when it's latched to Kong's face and all that. But like for the most part, this is a real octopus and like a model set. And then you've got like early blue screen effects where you know you've got like these. Uh, silhouettes of the natives like chucking spears and rocks and things at the octopus and then you've got composite shots with with king kong you know just like again the, the effects are not super polished and they're not very sophisticated but it was really fun watching them try to make the best of what they could with what they had from a technical standpoint as somebody who likes watching old movies and old special effects movies it was really fun getting to see all of those things being employed all in the same sequence. Yeah, it's really fun to watch these and see how they mix and match the shots and cut back and forth between live action and models and, and the trickery and tricks that they get away with. Like, There's one shot in this movie, or, or I should say like a sequence of shots in this movie that I truly love where it's at the sort of towards the end when King Kong has the girl and he's climbing the building and they're going to drop the gas on him. There's a shot of real people turning on floodlights and then they cut to a model shot of a row of floodlights turning on and then that pans quickly to King Kong on the building. I was like, wow, that works so great as sort of like a transition between the real and the false and that kind of stuff really helps sell it i think there's really great compositions and i think that's partially due to the effects work you know having to find out where the mat is going to be and where the action is going to be and and blocking all that out Uh, i think that there are some really great shots in this movie uh really great looking shots in this movie too now i I can't believe i'm I'm gonna like end on this one but like one of the most ludicrous parts of this movie that i can't believe they even kept in the u.s cut is you know when they're on their expedition to the island and they're talking to the chief and they're trying to you know get permission oh yeah (laughs) they're trying to get permission to explore the island and he's like hey we got gifts and he gives them a radio and he's like you know you can get you, you can find out what's going on all over the planet with this radio i was like oh wow that's really interesting but then he gives everybody cigarettes Yep. A little boy comes up and like tugs on his arm and he's like, okay. And he gives the little boy cigarettes. And and in the American cut, I think it says like, don't tell your mother. And I don't remember what it says in the Japanese cut, but it's a little different. I I, I don't remember exactly. It's something similar, but I think the implication was the same that the the next person to come out for a cigarette was the boy's mother. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was like, don't let the police know. It was more along the lines of, you know, we shouldn't be selling these to underage kids. Yeah, the the radio made sense to me, but yeah, the cigarette bit always gets a laugh out of me because it's just a, it's such a ridiculous thing to be giving out to like gain trust from uh, island natives. Like, how did they all know how to smoke in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I, I just I wish they almost tied it into with something like it's a it's our brand, the pharmaceutical company, or, or they were doing a promotion. You know, that would have been a funny gag too, where they start giving away you know tote bags with their brand on it. And everything. <laughs> That would be the version of this movie made today. Yeah. And I guess with that, that's all the notes I had. Is there anything you got left that you'd like to talk about before we wrap this up, Dan? I think we pretty much touched on everything that I had had written down. So the only other thing I was thinking about Godzilla-wise was how to do more, you know? And... The only other way I thought is like there are eras of Godzilla. There's like there's the Showa era, the Heisei era, the Millennium era, the American era, the Monsterverse era. You know, they're like every sort of 10 movies or so, they reboot Godzilla in a lot of ways. So King Kong vs. Godzilla is the third movie in the Showa era. King Kong vs. King Ghidorah in 1991 is the third film in the Heisei era. And then in the Millennium era, the third film is Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah, giant monster monsters all-out attack and then the monsterverse third one is godzilla king of the monsters not godzilla vs kong i thought it was but i guess they're lumping all 
for the Skull Island is in there too. So technically, I guess. Anyway, you get the point, right? Like there are sort of like Bond periods of Godzilla, you know, like in the way Bond changes actors, Godzilla just kind of like, especially the Toho ones, like they are very sort of adamant in being like, no, this is this generation's Godzilla and the next generation will have another Godzilla, you know, and like recently we've got Shin Godzilla, which is just like incredible out of control Godzilla. So like maybe in the future we'll do another Godzilla movie. Who knows? Yeah, that's the thing like with Godzilla that like James Bond, both benefit from having something to say about our culture. When a new Godzilla movie is made, it's always better if the filmmakers have some kind of axe to grind about the world, you know, and and Bond is always uh, like every single movie is, is sort of commenting on what's popular at the time, right? It's almost never scathing. It's just like, hey, this music is popular. This fashion is popular. But like when Godzilla has something to say um, about, you know, like like Shin Godzilla is, is maybe one of the, the best recent examples, you know, just about government bureaucracy and, um, you know, uh, managing a disaster, right? Because I think Shin Godzilla was made in response to a tsunami that had hit Japan. And and so they were very upset at the way the government had handled that whole crisis. And so this movie was made to reflect that. And it's funny in a lot of ways, but in a lot of dark ways, right? And so I think the reason that movie works, despite the fact that Godzilla doesn't look like Godzilla in any version we've seen previously, like I thought that was going to be a major problem for the movie and it's not because this, so much of the movie is about other stuff the uh, inability for the the japanese government to to handle uh, a, a natural disaster like that um, anyway point being as long as there's strong points to be made godzilla can thrive you know like i think that's really all it comes down to yeah yeah i think he'll, he'll truly be immortal in that regard you know it's not a real person so you don't have to keep hiring an actor necessarily so like you don't have to pay godzilla anymore but yeah i love shin godzilla i remember when it came out i was like I, I was like, this is like the Doctor Strange love of Godzilla movies. Right. Like, it is insane yes. when it comes to like the level of bureaucratic nonsense and everything. But yeah, you're totally right. Like, my favorite, I'll just come out and say, my favorite Godzilla movie is Godzilla vs. Hedora. Mm -hmm. Okay. And like, that has an extremely heavy environmental issue theme going on with it and that really brings it was intended to sort of bring it all back to the beginning where Godzilla and the environment and you know nuclear waste and Hedorah being toxic sludge mm -hmm. and you know and it was just about kind of like owning it all again and actually that director got into quite a bit of trouble for making that movie and was never allowed to make another Godzilla movie again however he was a longtime producer of Godzilla movies and he, the last movie he produced was Shin Godzilla so it seems that he somehow got one over in the end on everybody by getting you know the messages out again in relation to uh, Godzilla and uh, and him you know anyway uh, that's all I have left to say Dan, plugs, what can you hit us with? I know one thing. Well, as you sort of touched on at the beginning of the show, we've got the monsters that made us. I think anybody listening to this episode uh, would appreciate everything we're doing over there on that show. Anybody who loves classic monsters should definitely check out the monsters that made us. We focus specifically on the old universal classic monsters. So Frankenstein, Dracula, the Invisible Man, Wolfman, Creature from the Black Lagoon, all those characters and uh, all of their different uh, sequels and iterations. And we are about halfway through. I think we are just over halfway through the original run of movies and we are just now getting into like the monster rally portion so our next episode will be frankenstein meets the wolfman and then beyond that we'll be getting into you know house of frankenstein which has like three or four monsters in it house of dracula same thing and so it'll be a lot of uh, monster mashups for us for a little while definitely check that out and i, I mean that's really it's that's all i've got going on but you can find me on on twitter at dan cologne and monsters that made us it's on Twitter at MonsterMadePod and on Instagram at the Monsters That Made Us. So you can follow us there too. Awesome. Sounds good. I guess the only thing left to add is you can find that show and all the other great shows on the network at cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. All right, Dan, I'll see you over on the other show soon. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Three, that's a magic number. It is. It's the magic number. Three. Three. They stubbing me, and that's the magic number. What does it all mean?